With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. E-S-N-Y. So we're diving right in, folks. Bleacher Creatures episode number 150. The reason you heard that uh, that quote right now, here in the booth with us, we have Ken Singleton. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Josh. Pleasure to be with you. Now, Ken, I got to start off really quick. Uh, how long did it take you to get used to the sound of your own voice? On <laughs> because I still don't get used to it when I'm re- re-listening to these episodes. So I was interested now. Yeah, that's a good question because uh, you don't really hear yourself the way you, you you think you would, if you understand what I mean. Absolutely. Uh, I can replays of my voice and I'm saying, man, I sound like that. And um <laughs> But uh, other people seem to like it. I guess that's what counts. <laughs> I mean, I, I remember the first time hearing you uh, hearing you on the Yes Network. I think it was April 1st or April 3rd of 1997 out on the West Coast. Oh, yeah. yeah. And I just remember my mind being blown because I was actually aware of you through a computer program I had where you could have the 79 Orioles play against the 61 Yankees or the 27 Yankees and the like. So, hi, like, it's Ken Singleton, and 11-year-old me is going, oh, I know that name, and I had no idea you were broadcasting. Uh-huh. A little deeper dive. Look at the names that you have gone into broadcasting with. And on the Montreal side, Dave Van Horn. Yeah. And then on, on the Yankees, it's a hit parade. Jim Cott, Bobby Mercer, Michael Kay. Like, I'm, all right, we'll, we'll do this right now. Who would you rather be stuck in traffic with, Michael wow. Kay or John Flaherty? um i guess michael because he could tell more stories you know he's been around longer although um you know i'm kind of the one that got flash into play by play uh because i told them if if you want to stick around for a number of years you've got to learn this and uh we were doing a game together in tampa bay and i told them you're going to do the third fourth and seventh innings and he said i'm not sure i'm ready i said well, somebody's got to talk and it's going to be you. <laughs> Very so, blunt. Yeah, that's so. That's how he got started doing play-by-play. And uh, Flash, uh, I'm, I'm very proud of what he's done over the years. Uh, to, to think that I'm the one who got him started in play-by-play. Now, of course, he's a great analyst being a catcher uh, in his major league career. But um, people uh, or play, former players who can do both are very rare indeed. And uh, the fact that... Uh, I got him started. I'm very proud of him. Uh, let's shift right into another younger protege of yours. Ryan Rucco has also done a great job on play-by-play with the Yankees. He's just a great guy all around. Have you, you really enjoyed working with him, didn't you? Uh, most definitely. Um, you know, Ryan started out as our stats guy. Yeah. Uh, he was in the booth with us, and 
I, I could tell that he, he was going to go places because he was always right on with his stats when he would hand them to us. And uh, I mean, he is uh, probably, you know, he's everywhere. I mean, he's doing basketball. He's, he, I think he does a little bit of boxing. He does uh, women's basketball. Uh, you, he does uh, uh, Nets games for the Yes on the Yes Network. Yeah. And of course, fills in for Michael K when Michael doesn't want to go on those West Coast trips. So, uh, you know, that, that's, you hear Ryan Ruko everywhere. I'm very proud of him too. I mean, these are young guys who are just sitting to my left in the booth and they had aspirations of being broadcasters. And, uh, you know, uh, Ryan is one of the best around now. Last one on the broadcasting end. How infectious is Paul O'Neill's energy in real life? <laughs> uh, Paul is something else, to be honest with you. I, I, <laughs> I really enjoy working with him. Uh, David Cohn. Uh, Coney is, uh, I mean, going on to bigger and better things. He's now doing games nationally. Uh, I, I think uh, Paul really plays best to the Yankee audience because they love him. They love him as a player, and now they love him as, you know, his quirkiness as a broadcast. You never know what he's going to say. And, uh, you know, how do you, uh, you, you're thinking when you're working on, how are we going to get this back on track? You know, just say, <laughs> how are we going to get back to the ball game here? And uh, eventually we do. Uh, Paul knows his stuff. There's no doubt about it. But he has a way of, uh, you know, making light in the booth. Especially on Old Timers Day, too, because uh, I'm never going to forget this. When Mariano Rivera got him with that cutter inside, fights it <laughs> off, and you hear just Paul, Paul just go, ah, I thought you weren't going to throw that. Just like yelling at him, running to first base. It, it's clear, like, the love for the game. When going, you've done, you've done this transition yourself, playing the broadcasting. The love for the game follows. It, it does. Uh, to be honest with you, Josh, there's nothing like being a major league player. But, uh, I mean, I did it for 15 years, and I played for some very good teams and uh, got to a couple of World Series and, and a few All-Star games. But uh, being a broadcaster is kind of second best. It's a close second because it keeps you around the game. Uh, you have to do your homework for sure. Yeah. And I, I felt that it, it's kind of kept, kept me younger over the years, or at least feeling younger than I actually am because you're around all these young players and stars who are, you know, primetime athletes. And then it makes you want to stay in shape, to be honest with you. And I do my best to do so. I must say, um, you look like you could call an entire season right now. Oh, no, I don't think so. I, I, you know, I, I did it for 37 years. Um, you know, there were a couple of seasons where I played every game and yeah. uh, when I was playing. And that's tough enough as it is. Uh, I think as you get older, you know, travel kind of wears on you. Other things become more important. Uh, you know, family becomes more important. Uh, you know, I have grandkids now, and I like to be around them. Um, uh, to be honest with you, through modern technology. Now, I, I'm in Maryland right now, but we spend most of the uh, winter in Florida. Uh, mm -hmm. In fact, we'll be going back after the holidays. And um, my son can actually stream my grandson's basketball games. So with modern technology... You know, I don't feel like I'm missing all that much because I could be sitting on the beach and watching his basketball game or, you know, just coming off the golf course and watching a basketball game up from South Jersey and uh, with my grandson scoring points and, you know, handing out dimes. You know, that's um, he's a good player. Uh, you get on the golf course a lot these days? Oh, my goodness. Well, now that I'm here in Maryland, it's too cold, but uh, right. <laughs> I'm in Florida. I'm playing at least three times a week. I've got several of my former teammates down there. Oh, that's great. Uh, uh, Mike Torres, a pitcher, and Ross Grimsley, a former pitcher. Yeah, uh, like quite a bit. Whereabouts in Florida? 
Uh, we live in a, in a little town uh, in between uh, Clearwater and St. Pete Beach. Uh, okay. Only 1,400 people. Uh, when I was uh, you know, doing Yankee games, of course, the Yankees trained in Tampa. It was only about a 30, 35-minute drive. Well, during spring training and spring break, so it usually takes you 40 minutes to get over to Tampa from where we were. And during the season, when I went down to do games at Tropicana Field, Tropicana Field is only a half hour away. So it was a, a very strategically placed little town called North Reddington Beach. So, uh, yeah, uh, I, I grew up in Naples. So I'm, I'm, oh, I'm yeah. in the area. So I, I, I grew up down there and went to high school, played a lot of baseball in that area. So, yeah, Naples is beautiful down that way. It's, it's a little far for us to go to play golf, but, uh, yeah, it, it's, uh, very nice. Hopefully, uh, you know, they, they, they get through the Zian thing and, uh, it wasn't too bad. It, originally, it was headed directly for us. Yeah, and we live on a barrier island, and it, it turned uh, with about a day and a half or two days ago. And uh, I, I will tell you guys, there's a local legend around where we live. The next town over is Seminole, Florida. Yeah, and the original inhabitants were Seminole Indians, and all the people around where I live down there, they know that the local legend is that the Indians. The Seminole Indians blessed the land so hurricanes would not hit it. And okay. twice, we've been there 20 years uh, in the wintertime mostly, and twice hurricanes have been coming straight for us, and both times they turned. And um, so people are thanking the Indians and, and going to the casinos a lot more. <laughs> Keeping with the Central Florida theme, my grandparents, so may they rest in peace, uh, wintered in Sarasota for years. Yeah even closer yeah yeah so like i just remember like one particular year a uh, uh, spring break went to see the pirates play the cardinals in bradenton at mckechnie field yes then drove to see the white Sox play the phillies on saint patty's day at ed smith stadium and then somewhere in between got dinner at shaner's and saw shane raleigh just slinging pizzas and beers <laughs> all over the place <laughs> yeah uh, well now ed smith's uh, stadium in sarasota is populated by baltimore the orioles yeah. down there. of course the pirates have been in bradenton uh you know maybe since honus wagner so uh, <laughs> I, I, yeah they, they, they've been there a long time and i can recall playing in both those stadiums from time to time in spring training there's there's a magic about spring training that's almost like minor league baseball it, it there's so few bells and whistles that you're actually just forced to sit and enjoy the game yeah, you can't. I, I think the players are more relaxed. They have a tendency to sign more autographs. Yeah, uh, nothing's really serious as of yet. If you lose the game, it's no big deal. You're just kind of getting ready uh, for the regular season to start. And I, I just um, uh, Legends Field where the Yankees are, or Steinbrenner Field where the Yankees train. It's a beautiful facility. Uh, it's um, maybe one of the best in Florida. Although all of them are very nice now. They've, yeah completely different than when I was playing they were, they were just minor league ballparks when I was playing but now they're they're, they're complexes where uh, they have several diamonds and you know some teams even um, um, host their minor league teams there in uh, in barracks and dorms uh, the Yankee uh, minor league state uh, facility is just down the street from Steinbrenner Field well, yeah they going down there all those franchises because you know in the summer we would do summer leagues and we'd go to those, you know, outer facilities all have the branding of like the Red Sox, the Yankees. Yeah. I, I think we went to the old Indians down in um, was it Homestead, I think it was. And 
Yeah. Uh, well, yeah, that's a long time ago, Alex. It, it, uh, well, well, it, like they were like only used like again now they're like only used for the these summer tournaments and uh, high school leagues. Uh-huh. But like yeah, you had the old branding on the walls and stuff. It was really like as a kid growing up, it was always a cool experience getting to play um, where the Twins were, where the Red Sox were, JetBlue before they did the renovations. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, it's it's such a cool place to grow up as a baseball fan and i imagine it's a cool place to be like when you've been in the game all your life and 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 you know you just stick there and and you get to enjoy it even more um because like yeah it's you step in the same batter's boxes as some of these major league players did during spring training like Uh i remember kind of having those moments like wow i'm stepping in the same boxes Derek cheater you know i was Uh a fan growing up paul o'neill was my favorite guy but you know yeah it was always a cool cool time and then once spring training comes around it, 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 you feel it in your bones and you're it's like that it's that time of year yeah it, it's it's funny because when you're a player you you have that sense that it's it, time is getting close here uh you know during my time with baltimore we trained in miami wow. and uh, such a bad place to train to be honest with you <laughs> and, uh you could sense you wanted to get out of the cold weather i lived in uh, maryland during the winter in those days and I was ready to go to spring training. I, I, I was ready to get it started. Uh, we, like I said, we had good teams. Uh, in those days, well before your guys' time, it was uh, uh, the Yankees, Boston, and ourselves, Baltimore, going for it every single year. And uh, it was like a three-way race every year. Uh, great competition between those three franchises. Um, the During my 10 years in Baltimore, we won more games than any other team, more yeah. regular games you won over 900 games in 10 years so that, that shows you how good the franchise was and but you know we had to deal with the Yankees and the Red Sox every single year Let's, and uh, so, sorry go ahead it was great competition it was uh you really had a life all over baseball you're born in New York you grew up in Mount Vernon lived in I believe it was Ralph Branca's house at one point Your yeah, father, my dad, yeah yeah and your dad was a your dad was a big uh, Dodgers fan but you were a Giants fan. Then you yeah. played for the Mets and broadcast for the Yankees. That's pretty much every New York baseball sport. So you got all your passport stamps. Yeah, that, that's that's true. Um, the the reason my my dad was a big Dodger fan because of Jackie Robinson, of course. Right. And but I was a Giant fan because of Willie Mays. I mean, he was my favorite player. He, he could do everything. And then uh, when I started playing, I actually got to play against uh, Willie Mays and Hank Aaron. Those guys early in my career. Yeah. You talk about your baseball cards coming to life. I mean, just uh, and, and not only coming to life, but uh, doing damage to your team. Uh, <laughs> but those guys, you know, well-deserved Hall of Famers and, uh, you know, playing against them and, you know, getting into all-star games uh, with them was, was was pretty cool, to be honest with you. I, uh, I did, like I said, there's nothing like being a major league player. Uh, growing up in Mount Vernon, uh, of course, um, uh, it was a great town to grow up in. There's a lot of uh, the schools were great. Uh, the recreational activities for the kids were fantastic. Uh, I, I'm not sure what it's like now, but that's the way it was back then. And um, uh, the high school teams were good. Mount Vernon High School. Um, I went on to college for a year at Hofstra University, and then the Mets drafted me number one. So my dad thought I was uh, crazy for quitting school, but uh, three years later, I was in the big leagues. So he didn't think I was so crazy then. 
Um, so you, you grew up in New York, went to yeah. Hofstra on Long Island, then you get drafted by the New York Mets, but then you go to the minors. And the, back then, I mean, Reggie Jackson talked about this in this book, how a lot of young players, particularly like younger black players, going to the South. That must, yeah. have, that must have been like a, a big culture shock. Yeah, in a way it was. Um, uh, I would say this. When, when I went away to play ball, my dad was from uh, from Alabama. And he, <laughs> I can remember what he told me. He said that, uh, remember, you're from New York City. You're just trying to get back here. You know, so uh, three years later, I was back. Uh, to me, I, I felt that a lot of the heavy lifting was done before I, I, I got into pro ball. I mean, guys like Jackie Robinson and Larry Dolby and, you know, Mays and Aaron, all those guys, they, they went through it more so than I did. I, I Wasn't think Larry was, Dolby your hitting coach in Montreal? Was. He was. And uh, he was actually the, the man who taught me what type of hitter I should be. Um, he, he told me that um, uh, you can hit 300. And in those days, hitting 20 home runs was big. You know, you, you hit 20, you can hit 20 home runs. Of course now everybody's going for him i mean 20 is like a shortstop now yeah uh, but he, he said that uh you can do both if you rely on one more than the other the other one's going to suffer so my first big year of course was in montreal with doby as my hitting coach and he worked with me just about every day um i hit over 20 home runs i hit 300 that year i led the league in on-base percentage which in those days was not such a big deal right. um uh, it wasn't even a negotiating point on our point, yeah, on our part. Uh, nowadays, you lead the league on base percentage. It's it's worth an extra five, maybe ten million bucks. Exactly. But in those days, didn't even bring it up. You know, the fact that I led the league on base percentage. Pivoting back to the Mets, because you you worked with the great Larry Doby in Montreal, and we'll and we'll talk about Gene Mock in a second too. But mm -hmm. you debuted with the Mets like right after the Miracle Team, so you're in the clubhouse with Gil Hodges, yeah. with Tom Seaver. Yeah. With Don Plendenning, like, yeah. what kind of like what kind as a rookie uh -huh. that your baseball cards come to life, like you said? Uh, um, of course, as you said, the Mets were the reigning world champs. And I was in spring training with the Mets uh, the year that I got called up and I had a great spring. I think I hit three or four home runs and, you know, I hit very well, but they were the reigning world champs and your team was kind of set. So I, I was kind of the last guy cut sent to the minor leagues and here I am packing up my bag and getting ready to go across town to the minor league camp. And I, I feel a tap on my shoulder and I turn around and it's Tom Seaver. And uh, Tom says, kid, he says, you had a great spring. You know, we're just, we're just loaded here. We're the world champs. But he said, you get off to a good start in the minor leagues. You'll be back in the big leagues by June, uh, June 24th. I was <laughs> back in the big leagues. I, I joined four, right? Yeah, I joined the Mets in Chicago, and as I was walking into the visiting clubhouse at Wrigley Field, I opened the door, and the first guy I saw was Tom Seaver, and he yeah. just looked—he just looked at me and tipped his cap and said, "Welcome back, kid." And uh, uh, to see him first, the guy who sent me off and said, "You'll be back in June," that—that that was that was something special. What was something you learned from Hodges specifically? Um, he, he was sort of the strong, silent type. Uh, I, I, I kind of uh, didn't get off to a good start. I was 0 for my first 11 in the big leagues. Mm -hmm. I went 0 for 4 in Chicago my first day. Then I got to face Fergie Jenkins the next day. I went 0 for 4 again. Uh, got to Montreal. We went to Montreal to continue the trip. I went 0 for 3. Uh, so I'm thinking, oh, man, I'm 0 for 1. They're going to send me back to the minor leagues. 
Next time up, I got a base hit. My first big league hit was a single to center. And the next time up, I hit a home run. So now I've got a batting average in the big leagues. And uh, the next day before the next game, Gil Hodges says to me, when you hit your first major league home run, you get to take the lineup card out to the dugout and paste it on the wall or tape it to the wall. And uh, I, I I felt like a, a million bucks when he, when he said that's that. To amazing. Uh, of course, nowadays with players making 40, you have to feel like 40 million bucks. <laughs> but uh, the, the fact is that uh, he made me feel welcome that night. I think I got three more hits that day. And, uh, you know, I was kind of on a hot streak as I had been in AAA uh, to get called up to the big leagues. You're talking about something that as much utility as there is to the war stat, you're talking about the one thing that can't be measured, which is that human element. You yeah. said that you felt like a million dollars. So if you're out there feeling good, you're going to have a little extra bounce in your step. And just from the endorphins, you're probably going to be a little more focused and yeah. play better. There's no number that can measure that or formula yeah. or algorithm, whatever. Yeah, you're right, Josh. As a young player, you're not really sure. You know, you're feeling your way through the league. Yeah. Your first time to some of these major cities. I, you know, I, I had been to Chicago before because my mom was from there, but I'd never played ball at Wrigley Field. Uh, I, and then just going around the country to San Francisco and L.A. I can remember my first time in Dodger Stadium. Um, I, I just looked around and just said, man, this this place is awesome. You know, you, you want to do well. I remember the first time I met Vin Scully, um, uh, the, the great, probably the greatest baseball broadcaster ever. Uh, I was taking batting practice at uh, Dodger Stadium with the Mets. And once again, I feel a tap on my shoulder and I turn around and it's Mr. Scully. And in his voice, which, you know, nobody can replicate. He, he, he said, welcome, young man, to the big leagues. I've heard a lot about you. You're, you're from New York, aren't you? And I said, yes, Mr. Scully, I am. In fact, when I was very young, I used to listen to you on the radio and watch you on TV um, when I was growing up. When I was about four or five years old, my dad was a big Dodger fan. So as the game progresses, I'm playing that night. And when I came up the bat, you know, in those days, the fans would bring their transistor radios to the game sure. and listen to me while they're at the stadium. So I'm up there hitting and everybody starts laughing. I thought, did my pants fall down or something? Or <laughs> And it was actually Vinny telling that story and how he phrased it was, you know, he said, I must be getting older because now kids who used to listen to me on radio and TV in New York are now playing in the big leagues. And uh, uh, of course, you know, I, I can imagine what he said when, the, you know, I was broadcasting Expos games and you know, he, he's still going <laughs> and I've, I've, you know, I've since retired. So uh, from playing baseball. So I, I got to see Vin Scully on two different levels as a player and uh, as a broadcaster, and uh, he was uh, as a dynamic personality as you could meet. Uh, it's friendly and outgoing and um, uh, one of the nicest people you would ever want to meet in the game. And certainly he's going to be missed. In keeping with you coming across so many baseball greats in your <laughs> in your career, didn't you also play winter ball with Roberto Clemente? Yeah, Josh, yeah, you're well prepared. Yeah, I uh I uh, played for Clemente in, in, in the winter of 1970 in Puerto Rico. He was my manager. All right. Um, uh, there, there's a couple of things I can recall about him. Um, Frank Robinson was also managing in the winter league. They were oh, both. Wow. They were both still playing. Yeah. But they were both getting ready for their post-playing careers, which was coming up pretty soon. They're both getting older, and I, I can guarantee you that that the Clemente would have been a very good manager if he hadn't been killed tragically. In um, the majors, you mean? 
Yes, in the majors. Yeah. Yeah. You know, Frank went on to be manager of the year a couple of times. Yeah. But Clemente could have done the same thing. Uh, When I first got to to winter ball, Clemente called me in his office the first day, and I'm I'm thinking, I just got here. I can't be in trouble. So (laughs) he called me in, and he asked me, um, uh, what do you want to get out of winter ball? And I said, uh, first of all, I want to get experience. Our whole team was made up of uh, young major leaguers, mostly pirates, because of Clemente. Okay. Uh, we had people like Al Oliver and Dave Cash and uh, Ken Brett and Tim um, yeah. uh, Foley was my team, Mike Jorgensen. Just all these – nowadays you don't see that anymore. Big, big leaguers make so much money they don't need to play winter ball anymore. Uh, so, quick quick note about Al Oliver. I will wave the flag till the day I die that he belongs to the Hall of Fame. Uh, great hitter. Great. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I think he's got almost like 2,800 hits. So I think, I think he's got over 2,800 hits. Yeah, maybe more than that. Uh, yeah. Great hitter. Um, a good teammate. I used to hate it when he came up when I was playing against him in big league games. Yeah. But anyway, getting back to Clemente, he asked me, what do you want to get out of winter ball? And I said to him, well, I, I want to get experience. So next spring, I make sure I make the Mets. And I also want to hit 300. And uh, he looked at me and he said, don't worry, you'll make the Mets. <laughs> <laughs> and then he said, why would you say you want to hit 300? He says, why don't you say you want to hit 320? That way, if you don't make it and hit 309, you know, that's still pretty darn good. He said, if you say 300, you hit 295. That's not 300. So, Alec is a former hitting coach, and he's just loving yeah, every second of this. Yep. Those words rang very true with me for the rest of my career. But the kicker to the story is we get down to the last game of the regular season. We're playing in Arecibo, uh, Puerto Rico. Um and I'm hitting 299 and uh, going into the last game, uh, I needed to go one for two to get the 300. I made it out my first time up. The next time up, I hit a home run. All right. And as I'm coming back to the dugout, remember the game's still going on. He looks at me and says, you're hitting 300, aren't you? <laughs> I didn't know he knew. <laughs> he knew what I was hitting. And he looked at me and he says, you're out of the game. That's it. And uh, there was there was only like three players hit 300 in that winter ball that year. Um, and I was one of them primarily because he knew I had to go one for two. I didn't know he knew that. Wow. And uh, surprised, he took me out of the game and uh, just said, uh, and that's not the only time that happened to me. That happened to me in the big leagues once. The last day of the season, I was hitting 299. And... Um, Earl Weaver said to me, he says, he didn't say if you get go one for two. He said when you go one. When you get when you get your one for two and your first two at bats, I'm taking you out of the game. I got to hit my first time up. And when I went back, went to turn around, go back to first base, there's a pinch runner coming in. I, I would I was out of the game and I hit 300 my first year with the Orioles. And uh, I, I had just been traded to the Orioles that year. Uh, along with Mike Torres, who's my good Let, dog. Let's actually talk about that because you yeah. had, you found your footing in Montreal. You had been through the ringer. You had an allergic reaction to the uniform at yeah. one time. But then, and then you're playing there for Gene Mock, who's got very soft-spoken, has more of a player's manager reputation. Uh-huh. And then, uh, Alec, play sound cue too. Oh, I got to pull that one up. Yeah, uh-huh. we've been looking forward to this all show. <laughs> Larry Famous, we've all heard it before. Hit, hit play. We go. 
That's the only reason. And you'll have your chance tomorrow. Oh, you got it as quick as what you is can. Wrong with you? you ain't no good. No, you aren't either. You, you aren't, aren't either. No good. You're no fucking you good either. Your ass will never have our games. I hope. You. I would have liked you. Yeah, what, what, what are you doing here now? Well, why don't you call the league office and ask him? Yeah, I will. So, Ken, uh, you're going to play for Earl Weaver. You, you had to be intimidated going to play for him. Uh, kind of, you know, but <laughs> that what you just played is a classic, but oh yeah, at least once a week. I mean, he got, <laughs> he got thrown out of more games than any American League manager in history. And, I, I, uh, I'd like to talk about that game in particular because I actually looked up the date. So it's mid-September 1980. <laughs> You're okay. in a pe- you're in a pennant race with I, yeah. I think I think that that would have been the Yankees that year, right? They were did they win the East? Uh, yeah, yeah, they, I believe they did. Yeah, uh, and so it's but they're what, stuck again. <laughs> what what blows my mind is that that ejection happened in the first inning. I think yeah. before anybody was even on base. Yes, uh, uh, Bill Haller, the umpire there, he had called a balk on Mike Flanagan. Oh wow. That's that was Earl's argument, saying that he was just there for one reason to screw us over, and <laughs> <laughs> and of course Earl used stronger language than that. And the, the kicker is, and I found this out years later, Earl argued for about ten or fifteen minutes. I mean, he kept going back and yeah. run out of the game. So as he's leaving the game, he goes over to the mound and he looks at Mike and he says, "Did you balk?" And Mike, <laughs> "Well, maybe I did." And Earl said, well, screw you, too. <laughs> That's great. And he walked off. But uh, the umpires hated Earl. And, you know, he hated them. Yeah. And But they were on their toes because he knew the rules. And like I said, he got – I saw him get thrown out of – I saw him get thrown out of both games of a doubleheader. I just – you know, who, who, who does that happen to? That just uh, sounds like he had plans he had to do that, too. Well, the yeah. Might have been the case too, but he was very intense during games. Tell us uh, about your first ever meeting with Earl Weaver. If, well, he, he got me a few times. He yelled at me a few times. But <laughs> if the first pitch of the game he thought was a strike, the umpire called it a ball. He started yelling right away. Is, is it going to be like this all day? You know, just just uh, he, he was he was there to win. That he he was not there to make be your friend or anybody's friend. He got paid to win games, and he knew it. And Alec, uh, Alec, it kind of sounds like you watching any Yankees game. Yeah. Yes. yes. <laughs> you, you know what I tell Yankee fans who really get intense when they lose a game? I tell them, look, you're not going to win every game. You just got to win most of them. That, that you know, you some of them are going to be tough losses. And fortunately for me, I was broadcasting Yankee games for 25 years. They had a winning record every year. I mean, it, you, you, no other team can say that. So I've, I've been very fortunate playing for winning teams and broadcasting for winning teams. That kind of leads to a question I wanted to ask. As you said, you broadcasted for winning teams. You played for winning teams, teams that did actually win it all. Mm -hmm. You know, compared to what it was the 79 world series that you, that you lost and then the 83 that you won. And then from the, from the booth, when you're observing those Yankee teams, is mm-hmm. there something to those World Series championship teams? Because we we start to hear this this dialogue about, oh, the playoffs are a crapshoot. 
And I don't fully believe in that. I think, you know, game seven is a crapshoot for sure. But, you know, being so close and not winning it and then actually winning it and then watching the Yankees do the same during your broadcasting career, was is there anything that you identified like, oh, this team has what it takes or it's just you throw your hands uh, up in the air? That's a good question, Alex. And I, I will tell you this, in 79, uh, we got ahead of the Pirates three games to one. And um, uh, our team, I, I can tell you what happened. We got too overconfident. We, we thought, especially the way we picked up our third win, we rallied late in the game to win, uh, come from behind and win. And everybody was in the clubhouse jumping around like it was all over. You know, we got them. They can't beat us now. Well, Willie Stargell would not let them lose. Um, when we got to uh, the World Series again four years later, and I will tell you, we had 15 of the same players on the team that were on the team in 79, which is very rare. And the reason why it, there were so many of the same players, because we had a good team and they, they, they believed in us. I mean, we had a winning record every year. They didn't want to, you know, we came close the years that we didn't quite make it. And we got to the World Series again in 83. We're up on the Phillies three games to one. Nobody was jumping around. Nobody was saying, we got this. Um, Scott McGregor walked into the dugout after warming up and looked at everybody and just looked up and down the dugout and said, the world series is over. And he was, he was pitching that day and he went out there and threw a shutout and we won five to nothing. And, uh, it wasn't the first time he did that. Um, in 79, in the playoffs, we were playing the angels and, uh, we blew a game. We were ahead two games and none. In those days, the championship series was three out of five. And we were up two games and none. We go out to Anaheim to play, and the Angels rallied, and we lost. You can imagine how the clubhouse was. It was so quiet because um, we blew a chance to go to the World Series. And so we're playing again the next day. It's quiet in the, in the clubhouse after the game, as you can imagine. And Scott McGregor gets up in the middle of the clubhouse and says, I guarantee you, we will win tomorrow. Now he's pitching. He threw a shutout and we won seven to nothing. So years later, I, I said to Scott, I mean, we were on the golf course now. I said, Scotty, I said, uh, you know, we, we had Palmer and Dennis Martinez and, uh, you know, Mike Flanagan. We had some great pitchers, but none of them would have said what you said. None of them would have said, how, how could you say that? He says, did you ever check my lifetime record against the Angels? I, I said, no, not really. I, I think he said he was 21 and four against them in his, in his career. Every time we played the angels, Earl made sure that he would pitch because they couldn't hit him. Uh, and then I said, well, that doesn't say anything about the Phillies in 83. He says, well, oh, I just felt it that day. <laughs> <I just laughs> felt it warming up that they, they weren't going to touch me. And uh, he was that, right. That straight Andy Pettit energy from uh, Scott McGregor. Yeah, it, that's that's something that Andy Pettit would do. I mean, Andy's won more postseason games than anybody. Yeah. But I just think that uh, I thought that Scott McGregor, although he didn't have the stuff that uh, Palmer had, certainly, or Dennis Martinez or Flanagan, he just knew how to pitch and he had great confidence in what he was doing. And he could really keep hitters off balance. His whole thing was, you know how they talk about soft contact now? Yeah, sure. One of the originators of soft contact, a lot of pop-ups and weak ground balls and uh, because guys are hitting the ball at the end of the bat or getting jammed because he knew how to move the ball around and change speeds. And um, in that regard, he was a great pitcher. And uh, like I said, when you throw shutouts to 
you know, win a pennant and throw a shutout out to win the World Series. I mean, uh, th those are big games. You know, and in those days, um, what was our World Series check that year? I think if you look at the what the Astros got this year, they got a half a million dollars more than we did. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think they, they got 560 something thousand. We got 64,000. Uh, uh, speaking big, of, it was a big deal. Speaking mm -hmm. of the business of baseball, uh, as we, the night we're recording this, the news came out today that the Yankees have reportedly um, offered Aaron Judge eight years, 300 million. Uh, uh, in your career, you were not only traded for Dave McNally, who was a big part of the reserve clause hearings. Yeah, but then with Baltimore, you got to experience free agency like really in its infancy. Yeah. So, did you know from the start I'm staying in Baltimore, or did other teams call? Um, there is only probably only one team I would have left Baltimore for. Like I said, we were a good team. Yeah. Uh, we uh, we had young superstars on the team. We I saw Eddie Murray break in. I saw Cal Ripken break in. He, Two guys that were on their way to the Hall of Fame, and it was kind of evident very early that he, they were going to be some of the best players in the league. Um, no, I, I didn't want to leave Baltimore. I just wanted to be treated fairly, and I told my agent that. I said, am I one of the top 10% players in the league? And he said, yeah, sure you are. I said, well, make sure they pay me in the top 10%, and the Orioles are willing to do so. Uh, years later, um, I found out working for the Yankees, that um, George Steinbrenner tried to trade for me twice. Wow! To get me to the to the Yankees, uh, because I think the Yankees and, and Stick Michael in particular were well aware of what on base percentage meant. Yeah, and that was kind of my game. And other teams really weren't into that. And um, and I think the Earl Weaver knew what it meant. Earl Weaver and absolutely knew what it meant. It was my first year in Baltimore. He batted me lead off, and I wasn't lead off dude. And uh, so both times that the Yankees, Steinbrenner wanted to get me back. First of all, he knew I was a New Yorker, sure. and, uh, but both times the Orioles said no. Now, fortunately for me, Baltimore is not that far from New York that my parents could come down and watch me play on weekends if they wanted to, sure. uh, along with my aunt and uncle. Um, but after my mom and dad retired, they moved down to Maryland to uh, uh, be, and they lived 10 minutes away from us to be near their grandkids. Uh, my they're two, my two oldest kids, my two oldest boys who are now grown men. But, uh, uh, and it was, my parents, when I was growing up, they didn't get to see me play Little League much or Pony League, right, because they were working so hard. Right. Um, but the payoff for them was at the end. They, they got to see the my last three uh, seasons in big leagues. And they, they went to every home game. The ushers knew them. They would say, Mr. And Mrs. Singleton, you could, you could move down, you know, closer if you want. Those seats are not going to be taken tonight. You know, and I, I'd come back. My mom and dad are sitting right behind the screen with the family sections up a little ways. And uh, they, they were treated very well in Baltimore. Did your dad As, also play baseball? Uh, no, he didn't. My dad wasn't wasn't really uh, that much of an athlete. At least he, he didn't uh, talk much about it. Uh, but, um, you know, my brother was a, a big-time track star. He was an All-American. Um, and um, they went to Penn State as uh, his, his daughter, my niece did, and as my daughter did. And they, they all graduated from Penn State. In fact, right over my shoulder here, yeah, right here that with the yellow frame, if you can see it. Yeah. That's, that's the picture of my daughter from our high school father-daughter dance. Oh, now wow. she went on to Penn State, graduated 
got her degree in astronomy and now now she's out in uh, Flagstaff, Arizona, working at the Lowell Observatory. So wow. um, uh, she, she's uh, anything you want to know about outer space and what's going on out there, you ask her. <laughs> she, she can give you a pretty good answer. <laughs> Let's talk real fast about an old teammate of yours who hit more than 500 home runs to the moon. Uh -huh. One year in Baltimore with Reggie Jackson. What was that like? Uh, yeah, that was an experience, to be honest with you. Um, <laughs> first of all, uh, Reggie didn't show up right away. I don't know if you guys knew this. Uh, he wanted more money, oh, and Lord. the Orioles wouldn't give it to him to show up. So he showed up in May. I mean, we were already one month into <laughs> Um And by that time, we were about seven games behind. And uh, Reggie played well. I mean, I, I think he had uh, 27, uh, 20 something home runs and drove in 90, 90 plus runs, missing a month of the season. I mean, he's a Hall of Fame player, there's no doubt. But uh, that really hurt us when he didn't show up. And that was the first year of free agency. Yeah. And we kind of knew he was going to leave after the season. Now, years later, of course, Reggie's around the Yankees a lot and, uh, you know, me broadcasting the games. He and I became pretty good friends, and we talked. And he told me, he said, uh, for $250,000 more, I would have stayed in Baltimore, which in this day and age is a pittance, but that's what it was back then. Right. And I, I began to think about it because after Reggie left, yeah, I was the first Oriole to get a five-year contract. And, <laughs> uh, and not only that, when my agent said, and when I told him, tell him I want five years. And I'm thinking they're going to say no. And he came back the next day and said, they said, yeah. And then he said, how much money you want? I said, tell him I want this, this amount. You know, I, I thought I was shooting the moon. And he came back the next day. They said, yeah. And I, <laughs> I said, man, I should ask for more. But anyway, <laughs> my thinking was, if Reggie had signed with the team, there's no way they would have offered me that that, that contract or that security. And by that time, I had one son, and um, my oldest son was born. So I'm thinking security now. I'm, I'm thinking, nice. you got kids, you got to take care of. Um, and um, now, correct me if I'm wrong. You didn't live in Baltimore full time to start. You didn't you live out in California for a few years? Yeah, I, I actually my first year with the Orioles, I still lived in Montreal. Oh wow. Yeah, but that, you know, if you ever spend a winter in Montreal, you're ready to go somewhere else. You know? my, my, my bachelor party was actually on a weekend in December in Montreal when a stupid snowstorm was happening. Goodness, it, it, it could snow like every day, yeah. you know, and, and during January, probably get to 30 below. Oh, so uh, I, I remember Rick Dempsey calling me and asked me how I'm doing. And so I haven't been out of the house in a week, you know, then. And I said, I said, what are you doing? He says, I'm watching a football game. He's watching the same game I'm watching, but he's sitting out on his back deck in California. So I, I told my wife uh, at the time, I said, we're moving. She said, where are we going? She says, we're going. We're going somewhere nice. I said, how about California? She said, good. And there you we, go. And I lived one exit down the freeway from Dempsey. And uh, we became uh, golfing buddies along with uh, Robin Yount and Rudy May. And wow. uh, Robin Yount was really a good golfer I, I don't know if you guys knew he almost quit baseball to play golf really? and he was, he was that good just but, watching watching old footage of Robin Young from say like the 80s when he was still an infielder uh, I, I, I I said this earlier to um uh, an old colleague of mine I said 
watching Justin Verlander, I understand why guys like my dad and your dad, like our like that that general generation, kind of was in awe of Tom Seaver and Steve Carlton. And I looking at Robin Yount, I gotta figure like this guy had almost Mike Trout energy in his early days. Yeah. Well, first of all, he got to big leagues when he was 19 years old. Exactly. Yeah. yeah the um, the Brewers were just kind of coming into their own, looking for younger players. They got him. Molitor came shortly thereafter. And these two guys, of course, went on to the Hall of Fame. And uh, both of them got over 3,000 hits. So I, I just, uh, yeah, I just seeing Robin Yao play, you could see that he was going to be a pretty good player. You know, by that time, I was kind of into my, um, uh, what, sixth, seventh year in the big leagues, something like that. And uh, you, you watch the young players come in, you could see who's going to be pretty good. I remember seeing Trammell and Whitaker come in. Oh, yeah. And, I looked at them and said, how are they going to beat us with these two little leaguers in the middle of the field? <laughs> but, of course, they went on to become, uh, you know, Trammell's a Hall of Famer, and I think Whitaker should be. So I, I just uh, – I, I think the Veterans Committee will eventually put Lou Whitaker in the Hall of Fame. So it's very much – playing alongside these young players, you mentioned <laughs> them earlier, two of your Orioles teammates. You already mentioned Eddie Murray, yeah. probably one of the best switch hitters of all time. And then you mentioned Cal Ripken, who – I can only imagine being a Baltimore Oriole when Cal Ripken Jr. walks into the room for the first time because he's a shortstop, but he's 6'4", like built, built like a linebacker. Yeah. He just almost transcends the position. Um, yeah, he was a big kid. I, I can recall um, 1981. This is before Cal got to the big leagues. Right. Um, we, we had a strike that year, if you remember – that halted the season for about 60 days, 50-something days. And before the, the season got started again, everybody would – we were practicing at the Memorial Stadium, and Cal Sr. brought Cal down to the ballpark to work out with us. Well, Cal, the Orioles didn't know whether he was going to be a pitcher or a hitter at the time. Okay. And that, I was watching him hit. I mean, he's hitting rockets over the wall in left field. I'm saying <laughs> – they want this kid to be a pitcher. There's no way he should, he should be playing wherever he plays. Now he was a third baseman at the time, but we already had that. So Earl Weaver's thinking, you know what Earl's thinking? Maybe I'll move him to shortstop and we could have two guys who hit 20 plus home runs on the left side of the infield, which, which is true. Now, eventually the Orioles would trade um, Doug DeSensei because, uh, you know, he was a big um, union guy and our team was a strong union team. And they got rid of both him and Mark Belanger, who are our union leaders. Most of the teams in retribution to the to their clubs moved their um, uh, their team leaders, union leaders, around. They they got rid of them. They moved them around. Wow. Uh, and we lost to Sensei, who was a very good player, and Mark Belanger, who was you know, maybe one of the best fielding shortstops ever. He won eight Gold Gloves, and uh, so we got they got rid of those two guys and. Uh, Eventually, you know, Cal took over at short, but the Orioles have been looking for a third baseman for a long time since since they left. Did you, being in the Yankees booth during Derek Jeter's prime, did you see any similarities between himself and a young Cal Ripken, just in terms of how he then commanded the room? Well, I think one thing I saw right away, that they didn't make any mistakes. Um, and if they did, they didn't make them again. Uh, they were both very well-schooled baseball players. Uh, Cal had a little more power than uh, than Jeter. Right. But, uh, you know, I think Jeter hit 250-something home runs. Cal hit 400 home runs. Yeah. So 
there, there's a difference there. And as you said, Cal's a big guy. Um, in, in fact, I, I will tell you this, Josh and Alex, that Cal Ripken is physically, he's the strongest player I played with. He, he's, his physical strength was off the charts. Um, I played basketball against him in the wintertime. Oh, and wow. you go after a rebound, you try and move him and push him, you couldn't do it. <laughs> he would just hold his ground and uh, you couldn't you couldn't move it. Uh, he had a great sense of balance. Very good basketball player, as most baseball players were. You know, actually, yeah. I went to Oscar on a basketball scholarship. So, and in those days, they allowed you to supplement your income by playing basketball against the, the schools, which was good for the Orioles because it, it gave them a presence in the community, and we raised money for the schools, and the players would get a little bit too. But all that ended when um, uh, Mike Flanagan tore his Achilles tendon. The Orioles said, "No, no more, no Moss. no more basketball." And then twenty years, and then twenty years later, Aaron Boone tore his ACL. Exactly. So that that's um, uh, yeah, uh, I, I could I could see you know they they and in, in this day and age, why should you? They got so much more money invested in the players. I mean, each player now has his own personal trainer, so that they don't need to be playing basketball and they don't need to be making extra money. Uh, trying to raise money for schools. They do it in other ways. Let's uh, do a deep dive here. This is from a Sports Illustrated article from 1977. Your former <laughs> teammate, Brooks Robinson, said his career will be marred by the fact that he runs like me. <laughs> now, was was Brooks always kind of a jokester when you arrived? Because he, he uh, definitely seems like wizard on the field, kind of uh, always had a smile off of it. Well, of course, he's in the Hall of Fame, probably the greatest fielding third baseman ever. Yeah. Um by the time I got to the Orioles, uh, Brooks was not hitting the way he used to, but he was certainly still the best fielding third baseman. And he was funny. Uh, I can remember the night that Sammy Stewart, um, right-handed, broke into the big leagues for us. And he struck out the first seven White Sox that he faced, first seven hitters he faced in the big leagues, he struck them out. And um, after the second inning, he comes back to the dugout, and, and Brooks says to him, Sammy, don't be upset if you don't strike everybody out. <laughs> <laughs> and he went out and struck out the first guy from the next inning. And, uh, his, yeah, Sammy was uh, a hard thrower from North Carolina. He, he could really bring it up there. Um, of course, he settled into a relief role and was one of the better uh, middle relievers in the game uh, for a number of years. In fact, he was on uh, uh, our two World Series teams. The, those Orioles teams going, we'll say, from – 1969 all the way up through 1983 if you look at those teams there are some sneaky good players on there <laughs> we mentioned jim palmer don baylor was there for a little bit al bumbry lee may formerly of the great red machine oh. uh, it, it also just sounds like it was a good group of guys who were it not for the red sox and yankees also being highly competitive teams you could have had almost like a 1960s yankees energy about you it was uh great there were great players on that team, like like Palmer and Brooks, uh, Cal and Eddie. Uh, I mean, guys who were going to the Hall of Fame. We had a Hall of Fame manager. But the rest of the players, maybe not quite Hall of Famers, but really good players. And you, you mentioned some of them. Bumbry, Bumbry's my best friend. We play a lot of golf together. Um, Lee May, uh, unfortunately, has passed away. But he's one of the funniest players I ever played with. And, and, and really, you know, his nickname was a big bopper. You know, we had pitchers. Like Tippy Martinez, Scott McGregor, and uh, you know Mike Flanagan, really good pitchers to back up Palmer in the rotation. Dennis Martinez, still a good friend of mine. Uh, he lives in Florida, but he he comes up and plays in my golf tournament, 
in Maryland every June. Um, just we're still close, you know that. And um, that once you win a world championship with guys, yeah. that you, you have a bond for life. Uh, it's 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 something that not every player gets to do. Um, you know, you think of those great Chicago Cub teams with Ernie Banks and Santo and all that. They never won anything. You think of the Red Sox with your strength. They never won a World Series. You know, just uh, just and, and we got to do that. And that, that'll be with us forever. Um, as we get older, uh, next year will be oof, uh, the 40th anniversary of us winning the World Series. Uh, I'm sure the Orioles will do something uh, to commemorate that. I don't know how many other guys that they'll bring back, but it seems like um, every time they have a reunion, the fewer guys are back. You know, the guys pass on. Um, it makes it special. And unfortunately for Oriole fans, we're the last Oriole team to win the World Series. Uh, and it's been a long time. I mean, 40 years is a long, long time. And, and of course, nowadays, there's a, you know, you, you might make the playoffs, which, you know, might demolicate some of the fans. They, they might feel, okay, we made the playoffs. We didn't win it all. But, you know, a team like the Yankees, they make the playoffs every year. I was there 25 years. I think they made the playoffs 22 times. Yeah. But unless Win the World Series, Yankee fans, that's not good enough. Mm-hmm. Um, and the other teams, it might be good enough we made the playoffs, but uh, not not New York. That 1983 team, that was, like you said, a bunch of the guys left over from 1979, but there's that one key difference. Instead of Earl Weaver in the big chair, it's Joe Altabelli. Like, what, what, how is he different from the literal human spark plug <laughs> that is Earl Weaver? It, it was very, very different. Um, Joe knew he had uh, inherited Earl's team and it was more or less a veteran team uh, we all kind of knew this was going to be our last shot at winning the World Series and, and we did it now remind me had Earl retired uh, willingly yeah yeah the year before I know he came back yeah the, well that was after we were all gone and right. I, I, I've heard over the years that one reason he didn't uh, come back until after we were all gone, he didn't want to be the one to tell Jim Palmer he had to, that was it, you know, mm-hmm. and uh, he, he, he had left before Jim retired or was let go by the Orioles and the rest of us, for that matter. When he came back, it was a totally different team. Uh, it was so different, in fact, that uh, Eddie Murray was not happy with the guys they brought in. Um, they had signed some free agents. Um, years later, he said these guys had no idea what it meant to be an Oriole. They were, they were just there. For the Bucks, and you know they they didn't win. Uh, they didn't know, um, you know Eddie uh, had he he got so ticked off that eventually they traded him. Um, but they brought him back too, and he had his 500th home run in an Oriole uniform. Uh, it, yeah, uh, Joe out the belly was quiet. He, he um, Mike Flanagan used to say the ship is steering itself, <laughs> and because Joe would just he would uh, write the lineup down and then. Let us go out and play. And uh, we were on our way to win a World Series. So it wasn't much for him to do except write the names down. Now, I'm not taking away any credit from him because, in a way, we wanted to prove the real we could win without him. And uh, we did. And um, uh, yeah, that, that was a fun year. But I knew I was getting older. Some of the other guys were getting older. And the next year was my worst year in the big leagues. And I knew it was my last year. I, I didn't want to play anymore after that so I just now, uh, <laughs> did you know you wanted to go into broadcasting straight away 
not really, but I, I will tell you this. Um, I was getting kind of prepared for it. In Baltimore, every every uh, weekend, I had a, a radio pregame show uh, okay. on the Orioles Network that I would interview one of the players along with one of the broadcasters. Tom Marr was the radio broadcaster. And he he kind of produced the whole thing. and uh, But I was the guy who did the interview. Um, then in the offseason, uh, if, if we didn't make the playoffs, uh, one of the local TV stations would bring me in and during the newscast, sportscast, they would they would ask me questions about who I thought was going to win the world, you know, win the World Series or win the playoffs. And the first thing I would say to the, the fans who are watching in Baltimore, I said, don't bet the house on what I say. A lot of things can happen in the playoffs. <laughs> and um, uh, so I, I was no stranger to being on camera, but it, it's different when <laughs> when you're doing the games. And uh, uh, when I, I finally got out, the very next year I was in the booth. The very next year, um, Tony Kubek asked me if I wanted to do 20 uh, Toronto Blue Jay games, ones that he couldn't do because of conflicts with NBC, you know, his game of the week. So I said, sure, I'll try it. But my agent told them, he said, look, we're going to do this right. I mean, he's been on camera before, but we're going to do this right. We're going to go to spring training, do some games in spring training. And uh, I did some Blue Jay games. And a week before the regular season started, the Montreal Expo signed on to the TSN network, the sports network in Canada. Yep. Uh, they came back to me and said, said, instead of doing 20 games, how about doing 80 games? You'll do the 20 Blue Jay games, but you'll also do 60 Montreal games. Uh, so I said, sure. I asked my wife, I said, what do you think? She said, are they going to pay you? Yeah, I said, yeah, they're going to pay me, of course. <laughs> 60 games more money? I said, yeah. She said, go ahead. So um, about three years into that, um, the Expos came to me and said, we'd really like your work on TV. Um, We'd like you to do every game. And I said, "Uh, every game's not on TV. I mean, some of the English games are on radio. I said, we want you to do the games on radio as well as TV. So I got the work you mentioned, Dave Van Horn. I got to mention, I work with Dave, who's a Hall of Famer. Yep. I was a Hall of Famer. And um, I worked on radio with him. And he said, look, you got to do play-by-play. You got it on radio. Now, I hadn't done it before. He said, you're going to do the third, the fourth, and the seventh innings. So I did them, you know, and, uh, yeah, went from there. That's how I learned play-by-play. And then you brought that full circle back to Flash. I brought it back to Flash, and I brought it with that uh, ability to do that to New York. Uh, Twelve years later, when I when I came to do the Yankee games, and like I said, not many players at those at that time did both or could do both. Right. And um, the people at the MSG Network realized that, and uh, they thought I'd be a good fit with Jim Cott. And um, uh, I, I will tell you this: working with Jim Cott was a sheer pleasure. He he was. A lot of fun. I think people in New York liked the fact that he was a pitcher and I was a hitter. And, you know, we, we always had that little clash there, you know, there, that little spark in between us that the fans could recognize, but we were very respectful of each other. Like, you know, he'd say that pitch should have been a strike. And I said, you pitchers want everything, you know? Yeah. <laughs> I feel like we've seen that recently with like Paulie and Tony and. Yeah, and exactly. And you're exactly. absolutely right. It is such a great entertainment. Yeah. Um, 
what would you say that you were more nervous for broadcasting like your broadcasting debut as opposed to your professional debut or vice versa Ooh, that, that that's a great question i i will tell you that um my first time up at big leagues i could almost feel my knees knocking oh, this, wow. <laughs> i i just wanted to hit the ball I, I didn't care where it went just wanted to hit it i grounded out the second and you know i was kind of happy i hit the ball <laughs> but then I knew I was going to have to produce after that. And it's the same thing with broadcasting. I, I I think you realize there's a lot of people out there that you can't see and they're listening or watching. And some of the best advice I ever got was just make believe you're talking. When you're looking into the camera, make believe you're talking to, you know, one of your relatives or one of your friends. And that, that'll make you relax a little bit. Um, you know, after 37 years <laughs> of, of broadcasting, I, you got to be prepared. Number one, you got to do your homework. Uh, you, you've, uh, and when you work with somebody like Michael K, you figure if, if you don't know it, he knows it. And that way you can make the broadcast flow. Um, uh, he, he, Michael's a lot of fun to work with. I, I've, I've had some great broadcast partners. I mean, and if one of the main things that every broadcast partner should for your partner is to listen to what he says because that makes the broadcast flow. And, you, and if, you know, you're talking about one thing, he's talking about something else, and it's it just clashing, you know, and, and fans want that flow. They want to, you want fans to not get up out of their seats to go to the bathroom if you can. They just, they, you want them to sit there, oh, we, we don't want to miss these guys, what they're saying, whether it's fun stuff. The toughest games are the ones where either the Yankees are winning 14 to one or the other teams are winning 14 to one. Cause you got to keep them interested. You know, you, there's, you got to say, you can't keep, you got to keep them from turning off the TV because the Yankees, this game's in the bag or they'll never come back. You know? I remember when I was in high school, like watching one, cause I played high school baseball. Um, so I, I, what was that? So did I. Yeah. I, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I played high school baseball. I, I was also a switch hitter, more of a, more of like a contact guy. Okay. And I just remember watching one particular game that you were broadcasting when I was in high school. You were talking about the art of arguing with an umpire and not getting kicked out. How if there's a pitch you don't like, just kind of step back and go, uh, that was not a strike. Uh, he does not need help. And yeah. and just to have that very subtle, almost passive aggressive diss of the umpire where you know like pitch comes in, it's out of the zone called a strike. And that was not a strike. Okay. And just I don't know. There's just it's almost kind of needles at the umpire. It's like that wasn't a strike. We both know it. Yeah. Well, first of all, while you're saying that, you're not looking at him. Uh, <laughs> oh yeah. Because you know, if you look at him and you say something right away, the fans are tuned that you're mad with the umpire right, right away. You want the umpire to know you're not happy, mm -hmm. but you you want to say it in a way that you know you're facing Nolan Ryan. He, he does not need any help. You know, just you know this. This this guy's throwing a hundred miles an hour. You know he does not need any help up here by you giving him pitch two inches he, off the. He's not only throwing a hundred miles per hour. Chances are one of those hundred mile per hour pitches because people don't realize Nolan Ryan walked everybody. That pitch is probably coming for your head at some point. Yeah, you're. He was the Josh. I will tell you, he was the most uncomfortable at bat of any pitcher I ever faced in the big leagues. Now, I still don't know. I hit three hundred against Nolan. Yeah. I, 12 for 40, but with 16 strikeouts. So the thing about it, I didn't feel bad striking out against him because he struck everybody out. You, you yeah. understand? Either struck you out, walked you, or maybe you could get a hit. 
So uh, I, I never hit a home run off him. But he had trouble beating the Orioles because he walked a lot of people. And we had a team that uh, seemed to come up with big hits. Uh, I can remember we had two guys who hit him pretty good. One was Mark Belanger, who didn't really hit anybody else but him. Yeah. And another guy was an outfielder named Pat Kelly, who had some power. Now, I can remember one night we're facing Nolan in Baltimore. We're losing three to nothing. And he's got like 14 strikeouts. It's the eighth inning. And I, I'm, I'm not the next hitter, but I'm the next hitter after. I'm in the dugout sitting next to Earl. He said, Earl, he's throwing 300 miles an hour. I mean, he's really pumping it tonight. So meanwhile, somebody made an error. Uh, somebody, the bases were loaded and Kelly's up. Uh, somebody made an error. Nolan walked two guys. And we had the bases loaded and Kelly's up. And Earl looked at me and he said, we got him right where we want him. And I'm thinking, what? <laughs> Kelly, hit, Kelly hit the next pitch for a grand slam. And, and, and Earl looked at me and winked because he knew Kelly could hit him. And uh, we won four to three. <laughs> and like, you could see the steam coming out of Nolan's ears on the mound. He was so ticked off. Like and, if, uh, I may, if I may flip the script, I remember I remember going with my with my dad to a Yankees Diamondbacks game in 2002. Randy uh -huh. Johnson's on the mound, and Johnson he tries to get cute with the strike zone, and he's uh -huh. like he's walking guys. And then I remember I'm pretty sure it was either Shane Spencer or Robin Ventura came up and just launched a grand slam off of him in the eighth inning. My money would be on Shane Spencer because he's a right-handed hitter. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, right. Ventura drew the walk, and then Shane Spencer hit the home oh. run. Yeah, well, stuff happens to even the best pitchers, you know. I, I just um, – uh, it, that makes it more amazing that Jim Palmer never gave up a grand slam. Never. Jim and, Palmer never gave up a grand slam. Yeah. He told me he walked a few with the bases loaded, but he wasn't giving up a grand slam. So he, he never did. Jim Palmer's – I've always been, been fascinated by him because Jim Palmer, my first memory of him is the old money store commercials he did in the 90s. So, <laughs> so he's just got this big old smile. He's like, hi, I'm Jim Palmer. He's like almost, almost kind of like Steve Garvey in a way. But then you yeah. look up, oh, no, like he's – this guy was – one of the best pitchers of his time, probably the best for a few years. Well, before your time, he was selling jockey underwear. You, I, I don't know if you remember those commercials. <laughs> no, I do not. Uh, I mean, mostly uh, uh, ads in magazines, like, uh, and uh, he'd be, be standing there in his jockey underwear and selling jockey underwear. And, uh, uh, you yeah, know, he, he was, you know, a good looking guy and he, he had a little diva quality to him, but he All was right. our meal ticket, you know. He won 20 games eight times in his career. Yeah. So he, I, I remember, I, you remember Yvonne Nova, the pitcher for the Yankees? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I, I introduced him to Palmer one night. Nova had no idea who Palmer was, right? <laughs> I, I said, I used to play with this guy. Um, he, was, he was my teammate, Jim Palmer. This is Yvonne Nova. Nova said, yeah, nice to meet you. You know, all that. I said, uh, Palmer was a pitcher. Nova said, yeah, okay. And I said, uh, uh, he won 20. And Nova kind of perked up a little bit. I said, uh, uh, he won 28 times. Nova went, ooh. <laughs> then I said, Hall of Fame. Nova said, nice to meet you. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, we're going to close this out with something of a baseball lightning round. All right, Ken Singleton. Oh, actually, before we do that, first off, for the since Alec and I are young guns, uh -huh. uh, describe the old Memorial Stadium for us. Uh, it, I thought it was a pitcher's park. To be honest with you, the, the gaps were very deep. Yeah, it looked very big. Full hitter, so so to speak. I, most of my home runs went to the gaps. 
Um, but it was very close down the lines. It was 309 down each line. Oh, so man. sort of like a horseshoe. And right. uh, to hit one out in right center, left center, or straightaway center, you really had to get into it. Um, but down the lines, I mean, you could barely hit it, and it's going out of the ballpark. Um, so guys like Palmer and Flanagan, they had a way of getting people to hit the ball to center field. And it, when I first got the ball, Paul Blair was playing center. You know, he won about eight or nine gold gloves. Yep. And then after Blair left, Al Bunbury, one of the fastest guys I ever played with, he was playing center. You know, I, I, I tell people I made a good living playing right field saying, Al, you got it. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, you know, he could cover a lot of ground. And, uh, you know, I, I still joke with him about that on the golf course. So. Uh, you you said uh, Nolan Ryan was your most uncomfortable at bat. Who was your most – who did you love to face, pitcher-wise? Uh Pretty good pitcher, Dennis Eckersley. I just all right. There's certain guys that just throw your speed, and he, I think he knew it, and I knew it too. He knew that if he messed up a little bit, it, something was going to get hit pretty hard. I think I had more hits against him than any other pitcher. Um, uh, just it, he used to throw sort of like three quarter sidearm, mm -hmm. and when you're on the other side hitting left handed, you get a good view of that stuff. And um, uh, I can recall. Uh, the Oriole record for consecutive hits is 10. And I, I I have that record. I had 10 hits in a row. And it all started with a home run off Eckersley. I went four for four that day, four for four the next day, and um, then two for two the next day before I finally made an out. And uh, um, actually, um, Cedric Mullins had nine hits in a row. I remember that. Yeah. The year before this week, yeah. this year. And I was actually listening to that game, driving in the car, and they're they're mentioning, oh, well, back in 1981, Ken had 10 hits in a row. And now here's Cedric Mullins; he has eight hits in a row. Oh, another base hit, he had nine in a row. So he's coming up, and I'm I'm thinking, should I be rooting for this guy to get this? <laughs> <laughs> um, of course, he didn't get it. I think he flied out. Yeah, he and did. hit nine. So one of my buddies said to me, uh, one of my golfing buddies said. Do you think, were you rooting for him to get that 10th hit? And I said to him, if you have a record for 40 years, don't you think it's worth keeping? <laughs> uh, he said, I, I think you're right. Yeah. So, you know, I wasn't really rooting for him, but I know how tough it is just to get nine or let alone 10. Yeah. The, rec the record is 12. So, uh, and the ball I hit the, after uh, I had gotten 10 was probably the hardest ball I hit of all those at bats and I hit a rocket was it turned into a double play that that, that could have been an 11th straight hit that the pressure would have yeah. been on at next at bat absolutely similar vein all right as a visiting ball player yeah. favorite ballpark to visit as a player least favorite ballpark to visit okay uh can I have more than one sure <laughs> all right my, my favorite place to hit was the kingdom is the world's greatest yes I it love was, the kingdom it was well the gaps were like 365 yeah uh, center field was pretty far if you could keep it away from center field uh i think i hit 14 home runs in that place and wow. those days the mariners didn't have a good pitching staff they were a you know expansion team so if we didn't win two out of three or we would get really pissed off <laughs> or if we didn't sweep him he'd get really pissed off and you know he'd be yelling they're one of the worst teams in baseball we can't win two out of three yeah. But usually we did. Yeah. Uh, so um, 
as far as hitting, I, I loved hitting in Fenway. I mean, you just, yeah, yeah the, the, the left field fence is so close. You feel you reach out and touch it. You know, as I think during broadcasting, I see you could be late as a left-handed hitter and still be great. Like Wade Boggs, just pepper the wall. Or as a right-handed hitter, if you pull the ball, I mean, you're golden. I mean, balls right there. Yeah, you just you're you're good. You know, just as and as a switch hitter, they didn't have many lefties, so I got to hit left-handed. I remember for years, uh, 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 my family my family had a summer home uh, out in Maine. And one of the few channels we got on the TV, I think we had five channels total. It was it wasn't Nesson, but it was the Red Sox channel. And I remember they had a promotion like for kids twelve and under, hit a home run over the Green Monster, and you could win some prizes. Sure enough, around ninety eight, ninety nine, they stopped holding that contest because too many kids were doing it. Or what? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, now, as far as difficult to hit in. I, I, you know, I, I always was a positive thinker. I, I didn't really think, but I can tell you, um, for some reason, I didn't hit all that well in Chicago. Hmm. Uh, maybe because they had some pretty good pitchers and maybe because we went there early in the season, it was cold a lot of times. Yeah, uh, and, you know, I just, I felt like I'd hit anywhere, to be honest with you. I, had, um, I can remember early in my career being in the uh, Astrodome, I thought it was really dark in there hmm. and it was, it was tougher to hit because it was hard to see the ball and they had a lot of hard throwers. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I, I, no, I felt like I hit every, I got my share of hits just about everywhere. Yeah, you mentioned, I was actually very happy you mentioned the kingdom. Uh, have you seen the secret base three plus hour documentary that is a cultural history of the Mariners? No, I haven't seen that. Uh, I'll send it to you. You'll, you'll really like it like a baseball lifer. It's yeah. Uh -huh. I'll, send, I'll send that your way. You'll really enjoy it. You know, um, the Mariners actually, uh, years after I retired, they picked their all-opponent team. Mm -hmm. And uh, I, I think I was the uh, – my, myself and Jim Rice were the number one opponents. Um, <laughs> evidently, we both wore out the kingdom. So, um, yeah. Were you, were you and Jim Rice friends in your careers? Uh, well, you know, you talked to them before ball games. When you're playing the Red Sox, you're not friends with anybody in their team. You know? Yeah. <laughs> if there was one team I really liked to beat, it was the Red Sox. But I'll tell you a quick story about Jim Rice. Um, my middle son went to Clemson to play baseball. Sure. And I'd go down there, and um, there was a, a driving range, golf driving range, just outside of town. And I would go down there and hit balls. Okay. And one day, the owner, the proprietor, came up to me and says, hey, you're Ken Singleton. He says, your son's doing a good job playing for Clemson. And I said, yeah, thank you. He's, he's going to be a good ball player. And, uh, and, you know, I'm hitting the golf ball. I'm hitting it pretty good. And he said, you see those pine trees way back beyond the range there? I said, yeah, I see him. He said, that's where Jim Rice hits them. <laughs> <laughs> I said, well, good for him. You know? <laughs> yeah. Anyway, uh, Ken Singleton, 50 plus years in the game, enjoying retirement right now. Looking back on it all, just sum it up. We're going to give you the floor. Um, I, I would tell you this. Uh, it, it went really quick uh, in terms of. Uh, you know, the 50 plus years, I got to meet a lot of good people in the game of baseball. Um, you know, people I, I remain friends with. Um, after I left Yes, uh, I miss the people I work with there. Uh, when you work for Yes, everybody's at the top of their game. They, they know what they're doing. They put out a good product, probably the best of any regional sports network. Mm -hmm. um, I, I kind of miss my job. 
I will tell you what I don't miss. I don't miss the preparation. Huh. Uh, it takes hours to get ready for every game. I don't miss that. I don't miss getting into cities at 4 a.m. in the morning, traveling with a baseball team. I don't miss that. Right. Um, I enjoy more time with my family, my grandkids. My grandson's a heck of a baseball player and basketball player. He's only 13 years old, but his little league team for the second year in a row got to the final four in New Jersey. Wow. And uh, if they had won that, they had a chance to go to Little League World Series, but they got knocked out each year by bigger schools, uh, bigger uh, bigger city teams. They come from a small town in South Jersey. Uh, my son, who helped coach the team, uh, said, at least we know we're the best team in South Jersey. I said, yeah, that's true. And um, uh, my grandson this year, he's, he started to hit home runs. He's starting to get bigger and stronger. He grew four inches this year. Wow. Well, um, he, he's going to be a really good player. I, I, You know, you could see it at a young age in, in somebody. You know, if he keeps his head on straight, which he and his dad will probably, he and his, myself and his dad will probably keep him going in the right direction. His dad was a pro too. Yeah. Played his organization. And uh, I, I love watching my granddaughters play soccer. Mm -hmm. um, my uh, daughter-in-law was a, a all-American soccer player. So, and um, so between the two of them, we're going to have some good athletes. And uh, there's nothing more fun as a grandparent. Hopefully, you guys get there one day to watching your grandkids just be successful. I mean, uh, you don't have the pressure that you had with your own kids, you know. Right. But you have some. There, there, there's, there's learning experiences you can hand out to them. Last question I'll ask because I can't believe we forgot this. Much like yourself, uh, Ken, I, I'm an ambidextrous switch hitter. Okay. Will, will you be teaching the grandson how to switch hit? I tried. Um, he's a, he likes hitting left-handed better. He throws right-handed, but he hits okay. left-handed. And I'm not going to force him, although I did tell him one day there's going to be somebody like Randy Johnson out on the mound. You're going to wish you were hitting right-handed. <laughs> <laughs> and uh he's still got time you know he he did it for a little while and and, and my son said you were at games you weren't at games and he hit pretty well right-handed but he just feels more comfortable hitting left handed. and like i said he started to hit home runs this year what so, inspired you to start switch hitting oh i i started when whew, i started hitting left-handed at first but yeah. all the others were hitting right-handed so i tried that and i could do both and uh, I didn't actually do it in games until I got to high school. Mm -hmm. And one day I was, you know, just fooling around before the game, hitting left-handed. Uh, I was strictly a right-handed hitter up to that point. Yeah. And my coach said, you know, they're throwing a right-hander today. Why don't you hit left-handed? I said, okay. I hit two home runs that day. He said, there you go. you're a switch hitter now. And from that point on, the scouts just gravitated towards me. So, um, you I know. I had to force oh, my parents you. and my coaches to sort of accept that I was switch hitting because my two favorite players growing up, Ken Griffey Jr. for the swagger, but I also <laughs> was I was also a big fan of Greg Jeffries just because. Okay. Watching, yeah, watching him with the Mets, like this, I'm like five six years old. I'm just watching him and I'm and I see him and I go, this is a guy who's not a great power hitter, but uh -huh. this, but he's got that bulldog mentality where he's like, okay, I'm going up to bat. The one thing I'm not going to do is strike out. Well, he'd certainly be in a different category than hitters nowadays. <laughs> yeah. Well, one thing to me is it's just way too many strikeouts. Uh, that's been many. a problem for the Yankees the last – and not only them, but every team. Yeah. I mean, I think for the last 10 years or so, 
the major league strikeout totals are going up every year. Yeah. And now a couple of years of home runs have gone up too. I mean, but it, that all there's there no hitters like Wade Boggs or Tony Gwynn around anymore. I just there's not many of them. All these guys are just trying to launch. And I, I slowly but surely, I think it's going to come back the other way and you're going to get more guys. I think one thing you, you're seeing more recently, the last couple of years, stolen bases are starting to come back. Yes. Absolutely. And they're really going to come back now that they're making the bases bigger and pitchers can't throw over a hundred times. You know, yeah. now, now there's going to be more action in the game and you're going to see. Not, that, not having the shift, you're going to see more contact hitting just by default. Oh, yeah. And the hitters are going to benefit. Yeah. Uh, that Mark Teixeira, uh, you know, any left-hand, you name any left-handed hitter, good left. How many rockets did they hit in the short right field that were turned into outs? I, I, I think uh, uh, they got to get more action into the game. They got to get more balls put in play. And I think that that's going to help. You know, it's funny because as Josh mentioned earlier, I was a hitting coach for a while at a uh, place here in Pennsylvania where a local uh, made it to the major leagues and he plays for the Diamondbacks right now. And it's always interesting hearing his perspective in the off season when he comes back and like mm. just watching his preparation and his, and the way his process works in the off season. And, but then recognizing, man, he's facing pitchers who have ungodly stuff, like, like 95 mile hour sliders and all that kind of stuff. And, I feel like also a lot of the times the pitchers don't, themselves don't know where it's going. So, yeah, Alex, I, I will tell you that there are definitely more hard throwers in the game than when I was playing. There's definitely more. Yeah. Um, there, there's a lot of guys who throw like Nolan Ryan now, a lot of them. And to me, this launch angle stuff where everybody's trying to lift up and hit the ball out, that means you can't hit a high fastball. You, you can't hit it. You're going to swing right through it. And most of the swings and misses are on that pitch just around the letters or a little higher where it looks good to the hitter because it's closest to their eyes and they see it well and they swing, they can't hit it because they're lifting up with their swings. It, it can't be done. Um, that's why I say they got to get away from this launch angle thing and bring back hitting. I mean, yep. just making to me, if the ball was too hard to reach and hit, that means it was going to be a ball. You know, it just, you, you can't hit that, you know, you're not going to hit it hard. So I, I just, I, it, I want to go to go the other way. I, I think I was a hitter that was in between, like Larry Doby said, you could hit home runs, but you also could hit for average. Mm -hmm. And I drew a lot of walks so that jacked my on-base percentage up. So I, I, I want hitters like that. It, it, it would have been really interesting if someone had gone to like Jim Palmer and said, throw a fastball letter high. Uh -huh. He'll probably be like, what are you talking about? That ball is going to get destroyed. But now, but nowadays, exactly. Pitchers are encouraged to do that because. Yeah. Cause they're all throwing like 95 to hundred and you yeah. know, Jim pretty well. And he had a, a pretty good high hard one at times, but he also knew how to pitch and he yeah. knew how to change speeds. He had a good slow curveball. He could dot his fastball. He had a good slider. Uh, he just knew how to pitch and it just wasn't trying to throw the ball by people. You know, mm -hmm. they're, they're trying to go for soft contact. You're trying to get that ground ball for the double play, you know, just, just things like that. Um, uh, it, it's the game has changed a lot. Uh, if, if you had players from a hundred years ago, come watch a game nowadays, <laughs> what the starting pitcher, it's, it's only the sixth inning. Where'd he go? Yeah. Or who's this guy coming in in the ninth inning just to throw one inning? 
or who's this designated hitter guy, you know, or things like that. So it makes you wonder if we could go back or go ahead a hundred years from now, and watch baseball, how much is this going to change a hundred years from now? Yeah. Of course we won't get the opportunity, but just the game's going to evolve and hopefully in a good way. I'm glad you brought that up because one of the questions I did want to ask, and I wasn't sure if we we're going to have time to, is just like with your extensive history with the game, just watching it evolve and the way it has. So, yeah, I thought you brought up some really good points there for sure. One comment I'm going to make uh, when you were talking about your switch hitting and when you started it, Ken, it's not supposed to be that easy. Come on. <laughs> That's not uh, fair. <laughs> it's twice as much work, Alex. You're right. Um, but I will say this, if the whole idea to make money in the big leagues is the play. Yeah. And if you're a switch hitter and you're good at it, if you're a switch hitter and you're good at it, you can play every single day. Mm -hmm. And I got to play with Eddie Murray batting behind me. And I will say this, I think we're the best switch hitting duo in the history of the game. And um, are, you, are you and Eddie still in touch? Oh, yeah. You know, in fact, Christmas is coming up. I'll probably call him or he's in California. He's got bad knees now, so he doesn't play golf like the rest. Of so, mm -hmm. uh, but, uh, you know, he's played in my tournament a couple of times, but I think now his knees are bothering him too much. Yeah, he's definitely like Eddie Murray definitely looks like it looks like someone who great teammate, not someone you messed with ever. Uh, I, I got some good Eddie Murray stories. I, I, we, we were playing in Japan and a pitcher threw at him. Uh, Eddie hit 10 home runs in two weeks down there playing in Japan. Did you meet Sadaharu O while you were there? Uh, yeah, I saw O. He didn't play. He was managing the other team. Right. So I guess one of these Japanese pitchers got tired of Eddie hitting home runs against, and he threw one right at Eddie's ear and knocked oh, him wow. down. Hat went, his helmet went flying, the bat went flying. Eddie got up, brushed himself off, stared at the pitcher, just stared right at him, and hit the next pitch out of the stadium. Wow. Measured it at 520 feet. And 520. It hit it hit and rolled downhill onto the shoreline of a lake. Oh he, and we're we're yelling at the Japanese pitcher, throw at me, throw at me. <laughs> <laughs> Understand what we were saying, but he, they had such a stunned look on their faces, like we poked the bear and the bear just got us all. I mean, he I I'd never seen a comeback like that by any hitter. Just hit it completely out of the stadium. That we've been having a great talk with Ken Singleton. I could talk to you for hours upon hours more. We'll definitely need to have you back on because, like, stories for days. Pleasure, Josh. Alex, my pleasure. Yeah. My so pleasure. thank you so much for joining us. And, uh, folks, you can find uh, Ken, you got anything you want to plug? Uh, yeah. Um, I, I, I'm with a uh, foundation that helps kids with dealing with cancer in their families it's called the cool kids campaign okay and uh if you go to coolkidscampaign.org you can see how you can donate uh, i have my golf tournament took 16 years of doing that uh things that we do for the kids and their families all our services are free for them we we give Amazing. them uh we have a, a newsletter that we send nationwide to kids who are in hospitals gift baskets christmas parties birthday parties all these services are free we have uh Parents night where we, we'll watch the kids at our clubhouse. Uh, we'll, you know, get them movies to watch while the parents go out on a date. You can imagine how families are dealing with a, a child that has cancer. And um, yeah. uh, unfortunately, some of these kids don't make it, but a lot of them do. 
and um, we, we try and make it easier on them. So uh, coolkidscampaign.org, um, all the uh, donations are appreciated. And we have several golf tournaments during the year all over the country. Micah Ruzioni has one in Boston. There you go. Uh, the Olympic ski skater, speed skater has one in North Carolina. And we're trying to get one organized for Dennis Martinez in Florida. And I have mine here in uh, Maryland. And um, we're trying to get some others organized around the country. So um, if you can help kids and their families with cancer, it's, it's a great cause. That would be the Cool Kids Campaign. Ken Singleton has been here on Bleacher Creatures, episode number 150. Ken, thanks so much for your time. This was a pleasure. Josh, Alex, take care. Have good holidays, guys. You too. You